You're listening to Resilient Forward, a podcast show to educate the public on the people, businesses, governments, and nonprofits working on resilient solutions and innovative strategies to our most challenging environmental issues. I am your host, Irela Bagué, a Florida native and environmental advocate. I have seen firsthand the impacts of climate change and its effects on our economy. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and learn something new about the fight against climate change in our path towards a resilient future. Welcome to Resilient Forward. Today, we are fortunate to have as one of our guests, one of the most exceptional professionals in meteorology and a dedicated climate literacy advocate, Mr. John Morales, who is the longest tenured broadcast meteorologist in South Florida for NBC6. And for he's been doing this for nearly three decades. And he has experience in tropical weather, hurricanes, and his experience is unrivaled. And he's led us, our, at least our, our community in South Florida and Puerto Rico through hurricanes such as Andrew, Katrina, Wilma, and most recently, obviously, Irma and Maria. Um, John, welcome to Resilient Forward. And um, let's get right to it. Um, we're hearing Thank that. You. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're, we're very fortunate. Um, Thank you. We're hearing, we're hearing that the, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also known as NOAA, predicts a very active hurricane season, which is the last thing we need during a pandemic. Um, we've already seen a named storm recently, and the season hasn't even officially started. What can you, what, perspective can you give us some insights and on these predictions and what should we, we be expecting this season? Yeah, uh, so the NOAA forecast, uh, which as you correctly state just came out, uh, seems to garner the most attention uh, out of uh, about two dozen uh, different forecasts put out by uh, different entities that include academia, uh, private companies, uh, uh, meteorological centers uh, around the world, and um, uh, their forecast is pretty much in line with the consensus of the forecast from, from these different entities, where everybody is, uh, seems to be converging on the idea that it's going to be a very active season. Uh, there are a couple of outliers, the UK Met Office and the European Center for Medium Range Weather Predictions, uh, uh, both are calling for a more average season, but just about every single other forecast is calling for uh, an above normal season. And that's certainly, as, as you state, you know, the last thing we want to hear. Um, we, we don't want to have to deal with a, an active hurricane year when we're also dealing with a global pandemic. Uh, the, the, the question, though, is, you know, once they form, where are they headed? Uh, and, and that's number one. Number two is to remember that it really only takes one. Uh, back in 1992, when Hurricane Andrew destroyed uh, southern Miami-Dade County, that had been a very inactive year. Uh, the A-named storm, Andrew, uh, didn't develop until the middle of August. Uh, so uh, much much of a departure from this year, where we already had Arthur uh, form in the month of May. Uh, parenthetically, I can tell you it's the sixth year in a row that we've had a pre-June 1st named storm in the Atlantic. Six years in a row, there's been some chatter on social media about, you know, the possibility of moving up the start of the hurricane season. No, nothing serious. I'm not saying that the Hurricane Center in Miami is contemplating that step, but certainly some talk about it because uh, uh, 
partially due to climate change, we're just seeing the season expand somewhat into months where, where we didn't see that much activity. Correct. I was going to ask that. Does that have any correlation to, you know, the warming of the planet, uh, also known as climate change? <laughs> and right. um, so, so apparently it could, it, could be, it could be, you know, related to that, obviously. It could. Uh, so it's important to state first and foremost that, um, you know, projections down the road, the, the best science right now uh, is not predicting an increase in the number of tropical cyclones around the world due to climate change, uh, because while the oceans are getting warmer and the oceans do feed uh, the uh, developing tropical storms and hurricanes and typhoons and cyclones, uh, there's a, a counteracting effect of stronger uh, upper level wind shear in a warmer world that could, uh, I guess, uh, curtail the number of, of storms that could form. So there's no clear indication as to whether we're going to have more or less. But, but there are a couple of things that are happening. One, uh, storms are happening or developing in areas of the planet where uh, they, they weren't forming before. So, for example, uh, we had Lorenzo last year, uh, the, the, the first Cat 5 hurricane so far east in the Atlantic, uh, and that fed off of very warm waters in that location. Uh, we're also seeing the development of tropical storms uh, much further north in latitudes where the water used to be too cold to be able to support these, and that's happening as well. And yes, because of warm waters, we're kind of seeing an expansion of the dates in which you could you could find storms forming. Uh, so, you know, we, again, six years in a row of a pre-June 1st storm in the Atlantic. And, and one final and perhaps the, the most uh, concerning of all is just in the last two weeks, we had a paper published, peer-reviewed paper, um, finding statistic, a statistically significant increase in the proportion of tropical cyclones around the planet that are reaching category three, four, and five intensity. In other mm -hmm. words, we may not be seeing more tropical storms and hurricanes, but a greater percentage of the ones that are forming are uh, garnering enough strength to enter this uh, range in which they can produce catastrophic damage, meaning something like Irma or Maria or Harvey um, where, where you know, places are just absolutely flattened uh, by, uh, by, by the, the hurricane or the typhoon. Uh, and uh, sadly, uh, more of the hurricanes and typhoons out there are reaching those very destructive levels. And that, that signal is due to climate change. Right. And, and that's, you know, and we've been seeing that. I mean, it's, you know, we've been seeing stronger storms, I mean, the past few years. So, and it costs catastrophic damage um, and to your point it only takes one whether it's an active season or not so active season it only takes one and so you know being that we're I guess doubly challenged now if we deal with a hurricane under pandemic conditions what should people be doing now to prepare being that you know some shelters may not be equipped because of social distancing guidelines and so forth um, have you heard anything related to that well, I, I think I think uh, the emergency managers and uh, leaders in, in different communities in Florida are are playing this on the fly. I mean, uh, they 
you know, these are this is a challenge that I don't think they had contemplated. Uh, so, in the last several weeks, uh, they have modified some plans. So, for example, I've heard that uh, instead of 20 square feet per uh, person at a shelter. Uh, there would be 36 square feet. In other words, think of a six by six square, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where where the person would therefore be at a socially uh, distant uh, location and therefore safer, right, <laughs> uh, right. from the pandemic and from contagion. Um, uh, and and to be able to do that, that means that the capacity of each one of the shelters would be lower. So, for example, they're scrambling to find. You know, hotel space in areas where the uh, the storm surge uh, would not reach. In other words, areas that don't have to be evacuated. Uh, for example, here in Southeast Florida. Right. Uh, so, so there's a lot of things, a lot of adjustments that are happening on the fly right now, which which I think are making this season one particularly challenging for the emergency managers and decision makers here in South Florida. Yeah, understandably so. But this is where communication, I think, plays a huge part. I mean, people really need to listen to, you know, the professionals, right? And to that point, you have guided many viewers during many hurricanes, but particularly Hurricane Maria in, in your native Puerto Rico, um, where you were that guiding voice, so to speak. Um, and we know that the Puerto Rican people are resilient, um, and and how how has the island fared so far since? I mean, I know you have family there, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Well, you know, it's it's very difficult. Uh, so my mother lives in Puerto Rico. All my family on my mother's side is in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, and my mom, uh, she's in her 80s. Uh, you know, one of the statements that she often makes to me is that, you know, she could have never imagined then, uh, you know, as as a person, uh, you know, of advanced age, she would have to deal with, uh, you know, a hurricane, uh, uh, earthquakes, because they've had some pretty significant earthquakes in in parts of Puerto Rico uh, just in the last several months, and and a global pandemic on top of that. Uh, She is a very, very strong, independent a woman who who is you know talk about resiliency. She is extremely resilient, and she's weathered a lot of this on her own. She lives uh, independently. Uh, thank goodness, uh, you know, is sound of, of body and mind, and uh, and of course, like as is typical in Puerto Rico, uh, you know, neighbors really help neighbors down there, and and uh, the, the sense of hospitality and and, and community is very very strong in Puerto Rico, which has allowed my mom to to have some help from from neighbors. But it's very, it's very, very challenging. Puerto Rico, before all these uh, natural uh, and, and unnatural disasters, uh, had had uh, a long-standing uh, problem with with the economy, uh, which uh, you know this this was for another show, maybe another podcast. But uh, <laughs> sure. uh, to carry, yeah, to carry to carry uh, uh, a never-ending recession uh, into a a catastrophe like Hurricane Maria, and then on top of that, add uh, you know the uh, the damage and the uncertainty of of uh, earthquakes that are in the magnitude of, of six uh, you know six point something, uh, and now a pandemic. It's just uh, it's really challenging down there. But you know it's it's so true that you say that the, the, you know the Puerto Rican people are just 
so unique. Um, my son's father's family, they're, they're all from Puerto Rico. And I've been fortunate to visit the island many times. And probably the best um, Christmases I've had <laughs> in my life have, 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 have celebrated there. And, um, you know, you see that. You see how people come together um, in a very unique way and in a very warm, hospitable way. It's, it's, it's so, so definitely I'm glad that, that your mom is doing good and she's, she's, she's doing well. And, and that's, that's great. And hopefully, you know, we'll cross our fingers that they're not that they're not impacted yet again by something this season. Well, and and I think you you give me an opportunity by by that last statement to state one more thing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I I uh, in some of the work that I do in terms of reporting on on climate uh, and climate change communications, I guess. Uh, I've had an opportunity to to interview some of the more prominent climate scientists on the planet, uh, including Kerry Emanuel in uh, MIT, and uh, his his team and and him have done some work in terms of uh, projections of the return period of different uh, intensity hurricanes to different locations uh, in the Atlantic Basin. Mm. And one of the most disconcerting things that I've I've seen from his work is that. Whereas a Hurricane Maria with that intensity, a border, borderline Cat 5, it was a 4, but it was right on the threshold of the Cat 5, striking Puerto Rico uh, at the end of the 20th century, so just a few years ago, was an event that you would expect once every 200 years. So, so that's how rare uh, that right. type of intensity hurricane striking the island would be. And the projection is that for the end of this present century, the end of the 21st century, that event would occur once every 20 years due to some of the changes that we're seeing on the planet driven by global warming. Uh, and that is consistent with some of the observations already being seen, as I told you this paper published two weeks ago, in, in terms mm -hmm. of a greater proportion of hurricanes reaching Cat 3, 4, and 5. So... You know, you asked me about the welfare of the people in Puerto Rico. Imagine what it would be like for a society, any society, could be the Bahamian society, Cuba, uh, you know, Puerto Rico, the Lesser Antilles, or somewhere here in the U.S. Sure. Uh, that, uh, that you get a, a, a catastrophe uh, of the magnitude of Maria happening every 20 years. Can you, can you build something that's resilient enough to withstand something like that? Can a society recover economically, uh, or for that matter, emotionally, from, from having to deal with, with a, such a catastrophe with that frequency? I think those are questions that everybody should ask themselves when they're thinking of you know, the climate change problem and the, claim, the climate change crisis. In other words, is this important? How do we, you know, is it, is it too far away for us to think about? Well, no, because we're talking no. about you know, societies seeing impacts of extreme weather events, which are going to make it very, very difficult to survive economically, and for that matter, uh, you know, I think emotionally, in 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 a, in a dystopic type of situation caused by climate change. So, really, you know, when people talk about climate change, and you and I can go into, we could we could do a few more podcasts with <laughs> related to this, but you know, it's really cause and effect, right? It's like if we focus on the cause, the effects 
would, you know, would be a little bit less, you know, impactful, correct? And so I think those are also questions that need to be uh, discussed because, yeah, okay, we're hit by this event, we rebuild, we recover, and then what? If we keep acting the way we're acting and, you know, our missions continue the way they are, well, we're just going to be reacting. We're not being proactive. And, um, exactly. you know, the whole, the whole point of being resilient is to, you know, minimize the cost. <laughs> um, exactly. But but let's pivot a little bit. Um, this whole social distancing thing went to effect, and um, because of it, you've been broadcasting weather from your home. <laughs> um, how, how, how has that been, and, and has that been challenging, or has, have, you, have, have you gained some new perspectives on just broadcasting in general? Well, let me tell you, first and foremost, uh, uh, it's amazing what technology can do right, uh, these days. Uh, I am mm -hmm. broadcasting via a cell phone, uh, which sends a, a high-definition signal, uh, in my case, through my, my home Wi-Fi, but it could also do it through, through just a plain old cell phone signal, uh, <laughs> uh, to, to, to our studios in Miramar. And they're broadcasting it on air, and it looks HD. I mean, you're, you're looking at the broadcast on TV. And, and, and this is me on my phone. It's crazy. I know. Um, so, so that's one. Number two, uh, I have remote access to my weather graphics computers that I'm doing that as well. I, I, I hold a laptop on my left hand. I, I uh, make the changes that I need to. I, I uh, press the space bar to advance uh, each one of the graphics through, through the show. And, and again, I mean, all, all with these uh, modern-day devices that we have here, and generally from my backyard in the afternoons and early evenings, and then from inside the house uh, during the night. Now, I know. We've uh, even met your I, dog. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, in that sense, thanks to technology, uh, it's, it's been easy. We've also been able to, uh, you know, we've had a, a few uh, bad weather events over the course of the last two-plus months, and we've been able to cover those as well while doing weather from home and, you know, and, and, and not miss a beat. In other words, our audience at NBC6 uh, has received prompt weather warnings, whether it's us breaking into programming or, or you know, recording videos on, on social media or whatnot. Uh, so people are, are, are weather ready and storm safe, even though we haven't stepped in the studio in a long time. At least I haven't uh, since mm -hmm. Patrick's Day. That was the last day I was in the studio. Wow. Um, yeah. Now, th th there are there are some interesting uh, uh, things that I've discovered from this. First and foremost, uh, the uh, the immense time and energy suck that <laughs> that a commute <laughs> means in my life. Uh, not commuting has opened up ninety minutes of time a day, but has also given me a lot more energy because I've noticed that just the round-trip drive, uh, as it accumulated each day of the week, you know, by the time I would get to a Thursday or a Friday, I was much more tired towards the end of the week. But it's not related to the work I'm doing. It's related to the commute and the stress of driving in Miami, which is such a difficult place to drive in. Uh, so I'm very grateful. Yeah, I'm very grateful because I, I, I uh, suddenly... I feel more productive. I have more energy. 
um, and, and, and I've been able to, to uh, withstand or maintain that energy until the end of the week. It has led to uh, not just the daily weather broadcasts, but also a lot of reporting. As a weather team at NBC6, our entire staff has been producing news reports generally uh, along the theme of climate and, and environment. And uh, just on my own, I'm, I'm, I'm averaging about one a week. Uh, and this includes, you know, interviewing scientists, logging those interviews, uh, writing a script, recording the track, suggesting uh, uh, different editing uh, videos to put into that track. So all that takes some coordination. If on top of that I'm doing the weather segment, well, you can imagine that it's a pretty busy week. So, so the weeks are busy, but I have a lot more energy and I feel a lot more productive by, by doing weather from home. And, and all the emissions that are not going into the air because we're not in our cars. <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, my, my, in my particular case, my car is powered by the sun. Oh, there uh, you I've go. Got, you have, uh, you have, yeah, electric. I have an, uh, I have an electric car that, uh, and I've got solar panels here at home. Mm -hmm. So generally, uh, it's, uh, it's all sun-driven. <laughs> so I'm very proud of that. But true, I mean, that, that car has barely moved uh, as I, I've, uh, you know, socially isolated here at home with my wife and. And uh, you know, certainly not uh, not been out and about uh, for the last uh, two plus months. Well, it's time to plug NBC Six because you guys are amazing, and that's where I particularly tune in for the weather. Of course, because of you and your team, but also because of your high technology. Um, first alert: Doppler six thousand. Talk about that and and how important technology plays in in, in your line of work. Yeah. It's it's been uh, it's been a tremendous tool uh, for us, uh, you know, to have the most powerful radar here in South Florida. It's it's even stronger than the National Weather Service Doppler radar. Um, it means that we've been able to see uh, hurricanes at a great distance. We've been able to penetrate past the uh, eye of hurricanes and see, say, the backside of of an eye uh, without any attenuation of our signal. Um, in, in times of uh, tornadoes, outbreaks, like, for example, the one we had on the eve of Hurricane Irma, uh, mm. we've been able to sometimes detect uh, tornadoes before a tornado warning is officially issued by the National Weather Service and be able to alert our audience that, that a tornado might be coming. Uh, so all, these, wow. all this is proof that this has been a, a terrific tool for us. Uh, we continue to utilize it on rainy days, like like this Memorial Day weekend, which which has been quite rainy for many. Um, and uh, you know, it's also it's been very reliable. That's the other, I think, terrific thing about it. You know, there's there's radar outages and routine maintenance that's been going on in some of the other weather weather radars around our area, but our radar is is just on the air constantly, and um, it's been a great tool. But you did mention one other thing, and I think I want to highlight that. And that's that's the the team of meteorologists that we have, you know, from mm -hmm. Ryan Phillips, who's the uh, I guess the second most senior person in our department, to uh, Adam Berg, who's doing the mornings, and then uh, Angie Lastman and Steve McLaughlin. So these la these last two, uh, who who are the youngest in our team, but uh, along with me, uh, we have been uh, communicating on climate and environment. I think like no other station in the state of Florida has been doing. 
So we're really leading in that area. Uh, there was just some research published. I'm actually a co-author of a paper where we did a controlled experiment and uh, we've been able to determine that when you add climate context to weather presentations, uh, the audience comes out not just more enlightened, but more curious to find out more about you know, the, the, the causes of climate change and what they can do about it. So in the end, it ends up you know, paying dividends in the whole process to, of acting on climate, of trying to mitigate the, the, the climate issue. Um, and, and it just gives me great pride to know that, that uh, as a team, we've been able to do that in addition to keeping people uh, safe from bad weather. Yeah, I mean, well, certainly you've been a pioneer on sounding the alarm of climate change on the air. Um, and, and, you know, the role of meteorologists as educators is, is something that I think that you've been really promoting for quite some time, not just here, but across the country and around the world, I think. So, um, you know, yeah. I, I think it's, you know, why did you decide to take this on and, 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 you know, how important it is to um, to really educate folks on on really what sea level rise is, what climate change is, why these things matter, and why science is so important. And we're seeing that with with this pandemic, how doctors and the science is, and the data is what we really need to be focusing on. Correct. Uh, well, I mean, so you. You've asked me about three different things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you can expand. So you asked me about, no, I mean, you know, trust in science and trust in expertise is the last thing you said. And and mm -hmm. I could do a whole separate show with you about the, the critical importance of that and how mm -hmm. science has been under attack in this country. And, and you know, for those that, that might want to accuse me of politicizing this discussion, it's not just in the three and a half years uh, of the Trump administration that it's been under attack. It's been under attack from many angles for many, many years in, 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 in other decades. You know, I can go all the way back to um, uh, when lead was uh, incorporated into the paints uh, that we use, when, when, leaded, when leaded gasoline was, was a thing here in this country. And right. science would also be under attack way back when as well. Of course, right. it's taken a turn for the, for the worse in recent years. And, you know, I, I stand up in defense of science. I stand up in defense of expertise. Trust the experts. Don't trust the blabbermouths. Trust the experts. They're going to guide you to uh, the, safe, the safest of all outcomes. So that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, the concept of the station scientist, which you touched on here. Uh, the station scientist... Uh, it means that in any newsroom, whether it's a newspaper or a radio station or a TV station, generally the person that knows the most about science is the weather person, the meteorologist. Mm -hmm. So we're trusted with not just discussing weather, but, you know, sometimes we talk about meteor showers and sometimes we talk about, you know, pretty sunsets and, and uh, uh, space. <laughs> missions and 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 uh, and all these different things right so so if we're if we're expected to know about science in general and help educate our audience about all aspects of science well then certainly it's within our realm to discuss the science or the state of the science of climate change anthropogenic climate change man-made climate change 
Um, so I've been encouraging my colleagues around the country for years now uh, to follow in the footsteps of a, of a handful of folks. And, and you're right. Uh, I would characterize the work of a handful of folks, including myself, as, as pioneering work. 15 plus years ago when we started to discuss climate within our weather segments. And I can name a few of these people, Mike Nelson in Denver, Jim Gandy in South Carolina, uh, myself and a few others that, that uh, had the courage to do this. And in, in my particular case, uh, it's been very well received. Uh, I don't get any pushback from the audience. Um, uh, you know, my news managers were concerned at first but uh, I had to explain to them that this was science, that this is this is not a uh, a politicized subject. There, there's no reason to to uh, be concerned about the politics of of this particular branch of science. Like there isn't any reason to you know be worried about the politics politics of gravity, <laughs> you know, exactly. the politics of whether of whether smoking causes cancer or not. Right? I mean, so that this are is a scientific <laughs> subject. Exactly. And finally, I think your first uh, question was the inspiration for all this. Uh, in 1997, there were 100 broadcast meteorologists that were invited to the East Room of the White House during the Clinton administration. And uh, Nobel laureate and Vice President Al Gore presented to these 100 meteorologists uh, about climate, much in the way that, uh, you know, his, his movie An Inconvenient Truth might have presented that subject matter as well. Mm -hmm. And many of us left uh, that um, uh, event uh, with a sense of urgency, uh, a sense that, okay, you know, we, we already understood the science. Uh, it had been already being discussed for a few decades, and then it was uh, brought onto all of Americans' attention uh, when James Hansen from NASA testified in front of the Senate in 1988. Uh, but, but this event in 1997, I think, really called for us to, to start communicating on the science of climate change to help people understand and make it less political. Uh, it was already, you know, by that time it had been politicized. Um, and uh, so, so our, our mission, uh, for, for those that chose to pursue it, because not everybody did, but particularly me, I said, well, you know what, this is science. I think I should communicate it. And uh, at first I did it little by little. I was in, in Spanish language TV at the time. Uh, but, in, you know, through the 2000s and particularly now in, in the 2010s and, and to the present day, uh, I've really accelerated um, in, in terms of how much I communicate about climate on air. And I'm glad I did because I, I feel that um, uh, I, I've set an example for others. And now there are young broadcast meteorologists, even in markets that could be considered challenging places to discuss mm -hmm. climate on TV, that are doing it and are educating their audience about it. Um, and, and, it's, and it's making, it's turning the tide because many people think that climate is still extremely polarized and politicized, and it's not as polarized as people think. There are uh, uh, annual, actually, I think they're biannual surveys from Yale Climate Communications and from George Mason University that that indicate that it's only it's only about ten, nine or ten percent 
of Americans that are dismissive about climate change, nine or ten percent. That means that ninety percent of the people are receptive and or accepting of the science and understand that humans have to do with these changes that we're seeing. And as well, they want to, you know, they want to do something about it. Maybe not 90% want to do something about it, but at least 90% are not dismissive. They're somewhat concerned or greatly concerned about climate. And I think those changes, which in the past wouldn't have shown that 90% were as concerned, uh, have a lot to do with, with what broadcast meteorologists have been doing around the country. We have helped turn the tide. Well, thank you so much for all that you're doing um, and really appreciate you taking the time with us. We always try to end our podcast asking all, actually every guest the same question. And I'm going to ask you this question, and it's what does resilience mean to you? Sure. Well, uh, you know, I think resiliency to me means, uh, you know, people not just being ready at at the family level. In other words, you know, you have a plan for uh, mm -hmm. the, the changes that might be forthcoming, whether it's extreme weather or a pandemic or, or things like that. Not just that. To me, it also means being aware of what changes at the societal level we're going to need and what you can do to act upon those. So, for example, you might say that, you know, you're, you're helping uh, your family be more resilient, resilient by, uh, you know, taking some action in your household to reduce your carbon footprint uh, and therefore minimizing extreme weather events in the future. Well, how about also urging not just people in your household and yourself, but your neighbors and your family members to get out and vote, because voting is a form of resiliency. Why? Because voting is the only way that we can change the path at a societal level, right? At, at a country level, at a state level, at, at the county level, to make sure that we are on a more resilient path going forward. So I urge everybody to participate in the election process. Because, yes, it's important to do things at home, but it's even more important to get change in your community and your society. Great. Thank you so much. What a great message. Um, John Morales, Chief Meteorologist at NBC6, we're so fortunate for you to have joined us today on Resilient Forward, our podcast. And thank you for all that you do to keep us informed and safe. Um, hopefully... Uh, we'll have a, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stay safe during these times. And, and again, thank you so much for all that you do for our community and beyond. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It was, it was great to be here with you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Resilient Forward. Don't forget to like this episode on your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. If you would like to know more about Resilient Forward or join us as a guest, please visit www.resilientforward.com. Join us next time, and remember, our environment is our economy. <laughs>